Well, in our Sunday school hour, we are mining through Micah. Micah chapter 2. We should be able to finish this chapter this morning. (laughs) We'll see. This is a little bit deeper water here at the end of this particular chapter. Let's begin reading in verse 11. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. Last week we covered verse 11 where the house of Israel wasn't adverse to hearing prophets. They just wanted to hear a prophet of their choosing. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. They would listen to a prophet who claimed to be from God so long as it was considered in their mind to be a good enough message to receive. And there were plenty of prophets who would give them what they wanted to hear. But they were false prophets who were pretending to walk in the Spirit, but they had a lying spirit. They were walking in falsehood. They were deceptive because they claimed to have come in the name of the Lord. We still see the same thing today. There are plenty of preachers who will give you what you want to hear. And they will speak of all the blessings we can have in Christ without ever addressing our sinfulness before a holy God. And the message can come across as God owes you abundant blessings. But I want to tell you this morning, friends, God doesn't owe us a thing. Now, I'm grateful for every blessing He bestows, and if I begin to count them, amen. But He doesn't owe me anything. And He's the potter, we're the clay. He can do with us as He sees fit. Now, in His mercy and His grace, He's provided forgiveness and salvation through Christ and His blood, and He's even blessed us in giving us the Word of God. And all that God, quote-unquote, owes us is what He promises in His Word. And this is why being in the Word of God is so valuable because you start to gain promises from the Word of God. And I don't mean this the way I'm going to put it in, okay? I don't know how to better say it, but you can kind of um, tell God, okay, God, this is what Your Word says. Now, You promised, okay? And so we, we have promises from God that He has to follow through with because He cannot lie and He cannot go against His character, But we have to be careful that we take those promises in context of what the rest of the chapter, the rest of what the book may be telling us, and in some cases, the the overall uh, theme of the Bible. And so we have to be careful with that kind of mindset. For example, a promise may be conditional, but we try to claim the promise without meeting His condition. And that's where we have to be a little bit more careful. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. From that verse, someone may claim that they are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But what's the condition? You first have to be one of God's children. If children, then heirs. 
you're not made a partaker of the benefits without being born again. And so you have to become a child of God in order to be an heir uh, of God. And then that, in, that has to turn to God's condition of salvation. Because how do you become a child of God? You see how it kind of builds there's conditions upon these promises. You have to be a child. Well, I'm a child. Well, are you? How, how, did you, how would you tell me you were born again? Well, I just remember one night I had a real fuzzy feeling. Okay, I'm not against fuzzy feelings. I like feelings. But has there been a point in your life when you've asked the Lord to save you of your sins? You know what I'm saying? And so there's conditions even upon how you become a child of God. Galatians 4, 6, and 7 says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So that's an example of where it is conditional. Uh, one more. Galatians 3.29 if, if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now that's a hot button one because it stirs up all kind of emotions when you start talking about Israel. But how many today claim to be the inheritors of the promises made by God to Abraham? Arabs, Jews, all of so-called Christendom, all of these groups, we all claim that. But what's the condition? If ye be Christ. And again, it goes back to being in the Lord. Then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The condition to be heirs to the promise is that we belong to Christ. So the promise has nothing to do with nationality. Although that's what we, we not hear necessarily, but we out there in mainstream try to make it say. And so there's a condition upon it. And what's interesting is, right before that, it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. But there's many who will take a clear teaching, corrupt it, because they leave out the condition. And I'm just trying to talk about false, false prophets a little bit before we move on. I didn't get it all out of my system last week, okay? And so there's, there's a condition there. Now, I think many are well-meaning, but they're understudied nonetheless. Um, however, there are some who are very purposeful in their twisting of the Scriptures in order to gain profit. There are certain groups out there that operate based off of that teaching, and if they don't get enough people rallied behind them, then the money's not coming in, and I'm not going to throw out the name. But come to me privately if you want to know, and I'll tell you. There are so many examples of this kind of distortion that we could do an entire series just talking about conditional blessings which are being corrupted. But the point I'm making here is that what false prophets like to do is give you the benefits without giving you the condition. And we've got to be careful about that because if we don't meet God's condition, we have no right to expect the blessing. They convince people of all the blessings in Christ that they are supposedly entitled to without ever addressing the need for holiness in their lives. It's as if now you can live any old way you want and God owes you a blessing. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a, there's a way that he expects us to live. This is what the prophets were doing in Micah's day. They were foretelling a prosperous days ahead without addressing their need to get right with God. Hey, Israel, here's the blessing. Don't worry about the condition. Just keep doing what you're doing. God's going to bless you. And, and just think, Micah was written some 2,700 years ago. And humanity hasn't changed a bit. We're still the same. 
I wrote this down, so much for mankind evolving into wise creatures. Um, okay, I'm not going to go down that road. We still want good tidings without addressing our need for God's righteousness, His standard of holiness, and His conditional promises. Remember from last week that lost people and even some ungrounded weak believers will begin to gravitate toward a certain type of message because they want the God of their choosing, not the God of this Bible. Well, I think God ought to do things this way, and so I'm going to find the message that meets my criteria of God. And we see this all over. And if you ever witness to people, you see it a lot because they all have their opinion. I'm not saying they're not, you know, it's okay to search and all those kind of things. I'm not against that. But uh, you hear all kind of things where, well, I thank God this, and I thank God that. Okay, well, what does the Bible say? Well, I think the Bible was written by men. So you just get into this circular thing. But uh, it, things haven't changed is all I'm saying. And, uh, and we gravitate towards though we, we want to hear. Now, without, I don't want to preach last week's message, but I ended last week by saying, what kind of prophet do you want? What kind of God do you want? Do you want a prophet who makes you feel good about your sinfulness? Or do you want a prophet who will be real with you and will preach the whole counsel of God? Do you want a God you can conform into what you want? Or do you want the God of this Bible? And we can't just pick and choose. Amen. Uh, man, Wednesday night just felt kind of tense. We can't pick and choose. It's, it's what the Word of God says. That's what's best. And if you weren't here, you can go online and listen. And, we, and I know we got to get to today's lesson. But the problem I've observed over the years is there are many who have the right message, but their delivery many times is so harsh. And, and we see that a lot in our circles. And it's caused what has happened as a result of some of these very harsh independent Baptist preachers is it's driven people towards a weaker brand of Christianity. Because the pendulum is swinging, and, and once you swing the pendulum way over here on harshness, the person that gets burned is going to go all the way back over here on the grace side. And so you've got to have this balance of law and grace. If all it is is law, 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 truth, 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 and we beat people over the head with that, and we tell them what a sorry scumbag they are, guess what? They're going to come over here, and they're going to go to mercy and grace, and they're, and they're going to miss the message of truth. It's not that the message isn't right, it's how it's delivered. And so we have to be careful that we're not out there propagating that kind of stereotype. And it's out there, there's nothing we can do about that, and that's okay. Um, I know when people come in here, they'll, they'll sense something different than that, but that's not the perception. And so just be careful how you deliver the message. We have to balance truth with mercy and law with grace. We can give truth without tanning someone's hide. Amen. Listen, that person ain't your kid anyway. Uh, we, we can give the unfiltered message of God's Word without being uncaring. We can be compassionate, but still deliver with conviction. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. And so we've got to learn. There are some people you've got to kind of smack them upside the head. But those are few and far between. All right, let's press on. <laughs> Verses 12 and 13 say, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee, 
I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. These are two great verses that demand a lot of study. And I quickly learned there are a lot of opinions on what this is saying right here. And there are three fairly commonly held positions. And and by the way, this is another reason I like teaching verse by verse. Because it reminds me just how much I don't know. (laughs) It's very humbling because you expect me to have answers, and rightfully so. But I'm very sorry to disappoint you. Amen. I can tell you that I do my best every time to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, I am very cognizant of my responsibility before God in giving an account, and I, and I do my best to rightly divide it. Uh, what's funny is some people, they'll begin to gain an understanding of, of Bible principles, and then they start to think that they know this book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and they read it through once, and they go, uh, yeah, I've read, the, I've read the Bible through. Oh, I didn't know it was just a novel. The Bible's alive, and when you read it again and again and you're consistent, it speaks to you. And what you read last year may speak to you differently this year. It's just the way God's Word is. And so people start to think they've got things figured out, but God's Word is so deep, you have to dig and mine for truths that are buried in God's Word. So if you ever think you've got the Bible figured out, let me encourage you to be a pastor and go verse by verse. You don't even have to pastor to do that. But it's just funner that way because now I'm held accountable. Right? I have to show up. If you think you've got it all figured out, just study verse by verse and then we can chit-chat. Amen. With that being said, some hold that the words here in verse 12 are a continuation of of the false prophet's message from verse 11. And that Micah then refutes that message in verse 13 with a prophecy of the Assyrians bringing them into captivity. Some hold both verses speak of the judgment which was to fall upon the house of Israel by the Assyrians, which would have been fulfilled when they came in, the Assyrians came in and they led captive the the northern house. And if that's the meaning, there's really not a whole lot to add to that because that's what we've been talking about throughout this book so far is that the Assyrians are going to come in and take them captive. Some hold, this is a third commonly held position, that both verses are a prophecy of the Messiah. But then within that opinion, there are several variations of what that means. Some see verses 12 and 13 as both verses speaking of judgment. There are those who see both verses as speaking of a restoration. And then there are those who see different timings in the fulfillment. Is it something that was fulfilled in Christ's first coming? Is it something that will be fulfilled in His second coming? Now, it seems to me most appropriate to interpret these two verses as a prophecy of Christ. But then we've got to just take some time this morning And let's consider the varying opinions of that prophecy. If this is a prophecy of Christ's judgment, then it has to look ahead 
to the great day of God's wrath when He comes again. And the reason I think this opinion must not be immediately discarded is because Basra is mentioned there in verse 12. Now, this topic can get really deep in a hurry, and I'm not sure how far to to take this, but Basra is associated with Edom. And therefore, the Edomites, and if you know anything about the Bible and the Edomites, God's at enmity with them. And long story short, Edom was originally Esau. The Bible says in Genesis 25:30, and Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And then in Genesis 36:1, now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. And I'm going to build upon this here, don't worry. Remember that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of food. It's amazing how often food is the reason for some like major issues in the Bible. By the way, that's why we're all sinners. Because that food looked too good to not have, right? And here's Esau, and he's like, man, I'm all kind of faint, and you know what? You can have my birthright. Just give me some food. But what's interesting is we learn that in, in Genesis 25, 34, that Esau sold his birthright because he despised it. That's a very powerful word. It means that he abhorred it. The application is those who despise the blessing which can only be found in Christ, they are destined for God's wrath. If you despise the blessing of the birthright of being born again in Christ, wrath is going to come to you. Those who cast God and His Christ aside can expect severe judgment. If we neglect Christ, reject Him, judgment will fall. Now remember that Basra is associated with the Edomites. And you also need to know that Idumea is synonymous with Edom. And you can kind of hear that almost in the the word. uh, Idumea, Edomite. And so Isaiah 34, 5 and 6 says, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment the sword of the lord is filled with blood it is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys of rams for the lord hath a sacrifice in basra and a great slaughter in the land of idumea now it really starts to get interesting to me when you get to isaiah 63 where it says in verses 1 through 4 who is this that cometh from edom with dyed garments from Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart. And the year of my redeemed is come. Now that's, that's wrath. 
that's being talked about there when Christ comes again. And that type of language is not just unique to Isaiah, but it is also found in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 49.13 says, For I have sworn by myself, saith the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all the cities thereof shall be perpetual waste. And then in Jeremiah 49.22, Behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle and spread his wings over Basra. And at that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. And often when it talks about a woman in travail, it's relating it to the day of God's wrath. And all the women who gave birth said, yeah, that makes sense. And so now, if this is the sense of Micah 2, verse 12, then verse 13 is another way to speak of the judgment which would fall against Basra. Like those verses I just read in Isaiah and Jeremiah. This would just be another way of saying, hey, judgment is coming. Jacob is said to be assembled together and where the remnant um, and, and that the remnant of Israel is gathered. This would make the breaker of verse 13 Christ, but Christ as he exercises his judgment and wrath. And so that's one way to look at it. That's a compelling case because when you start to study Basra, you start to see that it is associated it's mentioned in the Bible with God's wrath. And so that's interesting. And, and that, that could very well be it. But there are some potential holes in that line of thinking. Let me give you some of those. For example, verse 12 mentions gathering the remnant of Israel. And that's often used in the, in the Old Testament as God's blessing upon Israel. That He's going to gather them again after they had been scattered. It also speaks of a gathering and assembling of all of Jacob together as sheep. And it sounds familiar of the blessings of Christ that we find in the new covenant that he makes with both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the noise that's being made there at the end of verse 12 is often associated with the noise of gladness. And so in this case, many see it as a celebration of them coming out of captivity, not being taken into captivity. Then in verse 13, the imagery would be the release from captivity. We see that the gate is opened. It's opened by the breaker, and they are gone out. The king passes on before them. Now, with that in mind, let's consider these verses as them coming out of captivity. That it's not talking about a curse, but it's actually prophesying of a blessing. What some people will suggest when when you talk about this is that the shift is too sudden from verse 11 to verses 12 and 13 for it to go from cursings to blessings. But that's not unusual when you read through your Old Testament. We see that quite a bit. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 3 real quick, it says, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Now that's talking about destroying. But then the very next verse, chapter three and verse, or chapter 4 and verse 1 says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that in the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And He will teach us His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion for the word of the Lord, um, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's plenty of room scripturally to support that there are often very quick transitions in these prophecies, 
that it'll go very quick from, hey, guess what? You're going to die. Uh, guess what? You're going to be blessed. And it happens a lot, actually, as you, as you read through uh, your Old Testament. So there's plenty of room for that. And I, just because that happens, it doesn't mean that verses 12 and 13 here are not speaking of a blessing. Now, before I go any further on this, let me quickly mention how the Bible often has double fulfillments. There may be a, a fulfillment fairly close down the road, and then there may be a greater fulfillment much further down the road. And I'll give you an example here. What people see here, and I can definitely see this, is that the first fulfillment being a release from captivity, albeit the Babylonian captivity. Uh, stay with me. I know some of you would rather be you know, jabbing a pencil on your forehead. But this would mean the breaker here would be fulfilled in Cyrus. Remember, the prophecy so far in Micah is that the house of Israel, they're going to be taken captive. And we know that the house of Israel, for the house of Israel, this was accomplished by the Assyrians. But remember that the house of Judah didn't amend their ways. They didn't learn from what Israel went through and they continued to sin. And about 125 years later, they go into captivity when the Babylonians come in. But when the Babylonians came in, they defeated the Assyrians. And, the, and then they took the, the house of Judah captive for 70 years. But at the end of 70 years, the Persians rise up and they take over the Babylonians. And who was in charge of Persia at that time? It was Cyrus. And when Cyrus came into office, he released them from captivity. The Bible says in Isaiah 45, 1 and 2, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bars and cut it asunder, the bars of iron. And that's similar language to what we read there in verse 12. It's talking about the gates being open, or is it verse 13? Just make sure you know which one I'm talking about, and we'll be fine. There's similar language there. In fact, the beginning of verse 12, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. It's an inclusion of both houses here, This uh, what's being foretold of. And it says, I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, which some take to mean that uh, both houses here, those who are scattered in the house of Israel and those coming out of captivity from Babylon, they're being assembled back together into one house. So the first fulfillment is sometimes seen in Cyrus. There's plenty of room to support that, and I have no issue with that. But in the double fulfillment, if we look at it further down the road, then it would shift also to Christ. And Christ is the breaker. The only question is, what's the timing? Well, first of all, what is a breaker? Some of you may remember just over a year ago in John chapter 10 in our Sunday morning series, I mentioned the breaker. <laughs> I act like you guys know what I mentioned. Nobody remembers what I said last week. John chapter 10 is that great chapter of, of Jesus being the shepherd of the sheep. And we find sheep language here in verse 12. There's a gathering of sheep together into one fold. And in verse 13, the breaker goes before them. Now, because we as sheep are vulnerable, because we're weak, because we are so dependent upon our shepherd, 
We need one who will go before us to lead the way. The prophecy is the Lord is going to come, gather them together, and He's going to put together this flock of a multitude of sheep. But He will go before them, accomplishing a very important work. A shepherd feeds his flock. He waters his flock. He cares for his flock. But when it comes to being a breaker... A shepherd protects his flock. And that's what the breaker here implies. The breaker would go before the sheep, removing dangers in the way. During the warmer months, the shepherd would put forth his sheep and he would go before them. A shepherd never drives the sheep, but he leads them by going before them. The sheep would be led to the higher ground of the hill country, to mountain meadows. And these times would be spent in close companionship with the shepherd. Solitary care, alone with the shepherd. They were under his personal attention day and night. When the prophet Samuel came to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel, seven of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, but the youngest son, David, was in the fields keeping the sheep. And they had to go send for him. David would have acted as a breaker as he was tending to the sheep in the fields. It's no wonder David could write what he does. That he could write about the shepherd and the sheep. That he could write about being led through the valley of the shadow of death and being led into green pastures and beside still waters. And he says this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because the breaker has gone on before. David understood the Lord was his breaker. He would go before him in the valley of the shadow of death. And for that reason, David didn't have to fear any evil. David knew from firsthand experience. I'm sure you remember when David told Saul, I'll defeat this uncircumcised Philistine. 1 Samuel 17, 33-36. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. The servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David defended his father's sheep by being a breaker. When the lion and the bear came to take a lamb. He delivered the sheep by going after and smiting and killing both the lion and the bear. That's pretty hardcore right there. Amen. That's my kind of guy. Because I can just sit back and watch. (laughs) The breaker would know where all the pitfalls would lie. He would know the difficulties and dangers of traversing the high country. He would know where to ford the rivers. He would know to avoid certain poisonous plants. He would know rock slide prone areas and he would keep an eye out for the predators. Nothing surprised a skilled shepherd. 
He learned to handle them under all kinds of adverse conditions. He was always prepared to safeguard his flock. As the shepherd goes before the sheep, he makes sure the way is well watered, that there's plenty to eat along the journey. The breaker would go before the sheep and he would break up the brambles that were found in the way because the sheep would walk into them and they would get caught into them. We see that when Abraham is offering up Isaac. And they would just walk in there and get all tangled up. They're not very smart. And so they would go before, they would remove these impediments and, and they would, uh, in the process of a shepherd removing the bram- brambles and he would get all cut up and he would get all bloody and, and he would be all scarred. He keeps his eyes open for predators. When he spots a lion in the way, he guides the sheep out of the way and then he drives the lion out of that territory. And if the lion wants to give it a shot, He'll have to go through the breaker to get to the sheep. When he comes across a snake, he runs away. (laughs) Amen. Just kidding. When he comes across a snake, the breaker will chase them away or kill them if necessary. He spies out the hazards. He finds the safest place to ford. He goes before the sheep first. When he comes to a precipice, he ensures that the sheep can safely cross. And if there's a chance of the path crumbling, he'll take the fall. Not the sheep. He does so because it, it, it gives them away. He gets all skinned up and he gets hurt himself. He gets back up, makes the pathway safe for passage. And here's the point. When the sheep follow their shepherd, their breaker, he's a bloody shepherd. He goes before them and faces all dangers. He's a wounded shepherd because he's the breaker. And is that Christ? He went on before us. He took all of that. He made the way. In light of this being a prophecy of the Messiah, there's one interesting take. I'll give you just a quick side note here. Some connect the breaker to being John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Messiah. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5 say, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mount of the Lord has spoken it. Do you see the the imagery? The terrain is becoming level. It's becoming easy to traverse. In Matthew 3, 1 through 3, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And I think we can see where the breaker could mean John the Baptist. The forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who made the way, prepared that way for Christ to come on the scene publicly. That was his ministry. To make that plain before Christ's manifestation to Israel. But we can also see in light of what I had just explained about the breaker's role that this can be easily a prophecy of Christ. I want to give you a portion of what Charles Spurgeon wrote on this verse. Quote, Inasmuch as Jesus has gone before us, things remain not as they would have been had He never passed that way. He has conquered every foe that obstructed the way. Cheer up now, thou faint-hearted warrior. Not only has Christ traveled the road, but He has slain the enemies. Dost thou dread sin? He has nailed it to His cross. 
Dost thou fear death? He has been the death of death. Art thou afraid of hell? He has barred against the advent of any of his children. They shall never see the gulf of perdition. Whatever foes may be before the Christian, they are all overcome. End quote. That's good. Amen. Christ, the breaker, he's gone before us. I don't think there's much more to add to that, but I want to mention just a couple things. Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 17 say, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and had broken down the middle wall of partition. He's the breaker. He broke down that middle wall. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, for to make it himself twain, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. So he's the breaker in that he broke down the middle wall of partition. Hallelujah. We are now one in Christ. Thank God. But he also broke something else down that I get very excited about. The veil of the temple was written twain from top to bottom. When he gave his life a ransom on the cross and his blood was shed and, and God accepted that sacrifice. And now we who were barred, and we were double barred because I think all of us in here were Gentile, are Gentiles. We couldn't even be in the tribe of Levi to be a high priest to go behind the curtain. But when Christ died, the veil was rent in twain. And now we have access on the blood of Christ to go before the throne of mercy. Amen. What a blessing. And so the breaker has gone before us and he made the way. I love it. Now, if Christ is the breaker, the last question would be, when is all this fulfilled? Well, I just showed you how Christ was the breaker in his first coming. But some see this as fulfilled in the millennial reign. And that conclusion is primarily made because of verse 12. Those who see this as the gathering together of the two houses into one fold, many of them in our circles only see that as possible in the millennial reign of Christ. My opinion, I personally already see it as fulfilled under the new covenant. I won't have time to deal with this in depth. But that's the question which needs to be answered. Is the new covenant in effect now? Because what some say is no, the new covenant is not in effect now. Because God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we're not really under a covenant. We're just out here. Well, it gets very interesting and it gets more controversial than I feel like getting today. Because I'm in a good mood. Some will say that it only applies to Israel. Because it is said in Jeremiah 31, of that new covenant, behold, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And therefore, anybody outside of Israel, us Gentiles, uh, we're not partakers. I personally feel the book of Hebrews makes it absolutely clear that the new covenant is in effect now. And that Gentiles are made partakers of that covenant. It's the new covenant where God says this, Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Hallelujah. I'm glad to be under that. And if that doesn't apply to all in Christ, I don't know what does. Not to mention all of Galatians 3, which we're not going to take the time to read. Um, Although I got through this much faster than I I thought I would, so maybe we could turn there and read. Y'all are thinking no, right? 
So all of Galatians 3, it makes it clear that all in Christ are made partakers of the covenant that God made with Abraham, which back there is called the everlasting covenant, but is synonymous with the new covenant. Not to mention Ephesians chapter 3, where this is the mystery of Christ. We are, we are in that mystery. It says in Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and, a prophets, and prophets by the Spirit. Here it is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. The reason why I, I think it's so clear that we are underneath that new covenant is where do we stick those who were being saved from among the Jews when the apostles were preaching? There were thousands being saved. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 two chapters later. Thousands were being won. Paul said there is, a, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Where do we put them? If there is no new covenant yet. You see the problem? Not to mention Ephesians chapter 4. Where we are all one in Christ. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's one body. One spirit. Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is above all and through all. And in you all. So in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free. We're all one. What happened? You've heard the saying before, the ground got level at the foot of the cross. How did that happen? Because the breaker went before us and made the, the high places low and the valleys high and the crooked places straight. Do you see how all this ties together? It's amazing. I love this verse in Micah. So why are so many trying to keep a, a distinction between the two? If there's only one body, why are we trying to say, no, 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 there's actually two bodies? And God hasn't dealt with the other half until the millennial reign. Amen. Now, believe me, I could spend weeks on that. But suffice to say that as of today, <laughs> that's my opinion. Ask me tonight, it might change. That's my opinion. That Micah 12 and 13 is ultimately a prophecy of Christ. That it was fulfilled in His first coming. He went before us taking away sin so that we could be brought out of sin's captivity. Hallelujah. I believe there is a double meaning there. Cyrus uh, let them go. He brought them out of captivity. They were released and they came back to the land. Um, and so I got no problem with that. And, and just for the record, I have no beef with you if you disagree with me. Amen. I, I, I don't think I've got the market on the Bible. I told you at the beginning, I don't know what I'm doing. Amen. I'm just, just like you trying to study and learn. And that's what God shared with me. So hope that was a blessing this morning. One thing we should be able to agree on, Christ went before us. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and he made the way. Let's pray.